Alright, Matthew chapter 12 tonight. Matthew chapter 12. And remember, last week we ended with uh, showing a kind of a power struggle that was taking place in the kingdom of heaven according to the law of Moses and according to the command of Israel, the man, the people were supposed to do whatever Jesus said to do. That was the law. That was the law of Moses. That was the law of Israel. When the prophet came, like unto Moses, they were supposed to listen to what he said to do. But we have the religious leaders literally opposing Jesus Christ. We see them physically going after John. They have him thrown in prison. And they are in the process of plotting to take out Jesus. They're persecuting His followers. and so, But specifically, they're going after the leadership. There is a power struggle taking place. And that's what Jesus was talking about when He talked about the violence in the kingdom of heaven. The prophet John, or John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, had announced Jesus Christ to Israel. God Himself had put His stamp of approval on Jesus at His baptism, literally announced, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so no one has the right to do what we are about to see them do here in this story. We have one of the things that we're seeing in trendy land and in the charismatic world. I think it was Stephen Furtick. And I wouldn't want to say as many bad things as there are to say. I still wouldn't want to say anything that was wrong. But I believe it was Stephen Furtick that talked about how Jesus basically broke the law for us. And that's just foolish. Okay, That is absolutely ridiculous. Jesus did not break the law for us. But people will often say things like that. Just ignorant preachers will say things like that. Because we do see Jesus often doing things that were in violation to the tradition of the religious leaders. But understand, those things were not Scripture. And even here in the situation we're about to see, when it comes to even certain ceremonial aspects of the law, understand Jesus is in fact the lawgiver. It's so important that we understand these concepts that we've been talking about. Before we get into this chapter, we need to remember things like the, uh, the significance of what happened when Jesus preached His Sermon on the Mount. This is a return to a mountain preaching to Israel. First, it was Mount Sinai where, he, where God showed up in His glory and melted the mountain and the people could not handle the hearing the voice of God. And so, God gave them what they wanted and God prophesied that prophet like unto Moses that was going to come. He has come. He has spoken to them in that Sermon on the Mount. He has given them these commands. And so, Understand what we're about to see these religious leaders do to Jesus. They're literally about to throw the law in the face of the lawgiver. And you don't get to do that. You can't do that. And so look what it says in verse 1. And at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and His disciples were unhungered, and he and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto Him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful, to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest? Or have ye not read in the law 
how on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Okay, now that's a pretty big statement there, but it was also completely true. You know what? What these men are doing, they are, they are going and calling out Jesus for not following a ceremonial law which showed they just don't recognize who He is. He is the lawgiver. He is the authority. And understand, Jesus was accused of many things. Okay, But understand, the only things that Jesus, you could even say, were guilty of, because sometimes they would just make railing accusations against Him. But the main thing, one of the main things He would always get accused of was going against the traditions of the elders or ceremonial things. But the ceremonial, Jesus, first off, Jesus never did anything against the moral law, ever. Now, Jesus did do some things that often on the surface appeared to be against the ceremonial laws. But in reality, they weren't against the ceremonial laws because, again, he's Jesus. These things were pointing to him. You know, he, and so there is nothing, Jesus didn't violate any laws. He never broke any laws. And to think that, these people could throw these things at him, showed they did not recognize who he was. And in the reality is too, even when it came to the Sabbath, they literally had turned the Sabbath into a burden. That is not the point of the Sabbath. And so the ceremonial laws were not meant to be a burden or to do harm. And that's why Jesus, he went and he showed. Remember what David did, how he went and ate the showbread that was not lawful to eat. It was only for the Levites. Okay, but here they were in a situation where they're you know, facing battles and they're hungry. This is a desperate situation. He's like, you know what? It was okay when they kind of threw the ceremonial things out the window to sustain David and his men that were doing the Lord's work. There was nothing wrong with that. And that's why, too, you have people that even were not under the ceremonial law, but people have even turned church sometimes into like a ceremonial keeping of the law thing where no matter what you better be at church doesn't matter if you're sick doesn't matter if it's a blizzard doesn't matter if you know there's a hurricane doesn't matter if there's an earthquake you know you be in the house of god well hey the house of god is meant to help people it's meant to edify and to minister not you know and i don't believe we should you know risk our lives uh to to do that if it's if it's likely going to kill you or put you in grave danger, I don't think you have to do it. Ladies, I think if you're in labor, it's okay for you to stay home from church that night. Or if you just had a baby real recently or something, and you missed some church for that, I don't think God's mad at you for it. it, it church isn't meant to be a burden. and But yet, many people make it a burden. And so, verse 7, he goes on to say, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he would not have condemned the guiltless. So notice Jesus just called himself guiltless here because he was not guilty of anything. But notice, if he knew what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting a prophecy from Hosea here that they clearly didn't understand, even though this is in their law. Look what it says in Hosea chapter 6. In verse 1, it says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten... And he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. 
Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain upon the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore have I hewed them by thy prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they like men have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. And I, I almost wish I could preach a sermon just on that passage right there because there's some deep stuff in there. There's some very significant things in here. But if I can try to briefly cover this passage, understand God gave the law so Israel would recognize their sinful condition and their need for a Savior. I've been saying that a lot. And I'm going to keep saying it because we've got to get this in our head. The law was meant to point people to the... to, to It was a way to reveal the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, when Christ came to earth, God revealed that in a much better and much clearer way where we literally have the Son of God walking on earth, preaching, being righteous. No sin is ever found in Him. We, you know, So, the way God spoke in, in these last days was so much better. But notice, when it came to the law, when it came to the sacrifices, again, those, so when they're sacrificing lambs, for example, God was doing that to just remind them there's a penalty for sin. And blood is the payment for that. And, and He did that so when the Messiah would come, they would recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But here was, and, and all these things too, God was wanting their hearts to be towards Him. The problem is, they made sacrifices as such a ritual that it was just an empty thing. And these people didn't have a love for God. They're doing their sacrifices, but they don't love God. They're sinning. They're willfully sinning against God. That's okay. I can just sacrifice a lamb. That's not what God wanted. Those sacrifices were meant to do something in the hearts of the people. And God's saying, you know, God wanted their heart. You know, great, you're circumcising the flesh. God said, I want the circumcision of the heart. We see this theme throughout the Old Testament. And then we see it again spelled out in the New Testament. In Hebrews uh, 10, 5, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. So again, these sacrifices that people were bringing to God, God never looked at those things and said, Wow, now I'm impressed with these people. God never looked when they would bring those sacrifices and think, Wow, I am well pleased in them. Now, here's what is revealed in the New Testament. You say, well, God was pleased with Abel. Yes, because God saw his faith. When God, when God would see their faith, and often their faith was manifested by the sacrificing of animals and things, but for Israel, it had become nothing more than just an empty ritual. And they had no love for God. They had no heart for God. Abel did have a heart for God when he was given his sacrifice to God, but Israel did not. And so when God said, I don't care about your sacrifices and offerings. These things don't matter. And so what God did, and what we see here in Hebrews, God said, but a body has thou prepared for me. God actually prepared something better for Israel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see here too, I wish I had time to prove this, but I'm just going to say this too in case any dispensationalists listen to this, it'll explode their heads, but it's true. When Jesus said 
Or in the beginning, he says, um, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He hath torn, and He will heal us. He hath smitten, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. The dispensationalists, they teach you all this stuff Israel's been going through for the last 2,000 years. It's God smiting them for all their sins. Okay, you know, and, but after two days, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. After 2,000 years of church age, he's going back to his people again. That's what they teach. Okay, so God's punishing Israel for their sins. I thought he punished Jesus for their sins. Isn't that what we teach? That Jesus died for the sins of the world, and that includes Israel? And so guess what? God did tear them and heal them. God did smite them. But who was it? How did He do it? He did it through Jesus Christ who was of Israel. Jesus took the beating on their behalf. And after two days, what happened on the third day? He rose again from the dead. This is a prophecy about Jesus, not about Israel. And we do. We have a lot of dispensationalists preaching that like it's still going to happen. God's not done with Israel. All the stuff you're seeing going on in the Middle East right now, God's, God's beating them up. God's punishing them because He's trying to wake them up. No, that's what He was doing during the time of the law. And then what did God do? God kept His promise to Israel and He brought that prophet and He offered up Himself as a sacrifice for sin. And you all know that here. But, but the main thing that I wanted to point out from that, Jesus goes back to this passage because He is showing that these ceremonial things, the, the, the physical act of these things, it means nothing to God. What matters is the heart of the thing. That's what matters. God doesn't care about your sacrifices. It, it, they mean absolutely nothing. And so the, the sacrifices were never what was pleasing God. What, remember what God told uh, King Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Yeah, I, I know I didn't do what you said to do. I didn't kill Agag and do all that stuff, but I'm going to sacrifice all these animals for you, God. That's a lot of animals. I don't care. You didn't listen to me. You know what? I'm taking the king from you. Oh, and guess what? King Saul is a great picture of replacement theology, by the way, too. The kingdom was taken from him and given to someone who is after God's own heart, David. Okay? I'm chasing rabbits tonight. These are good ones. All right? these, 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 this, is all, this is all good stuff. Just showing, too, that okay, what Jesus is talking about here, it's a theme throughout the Scriptures. It's a theme, and Israel still isn't getting it, even at this point. So verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. He's Lord of the Sabbath day. He is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the ruler. He is the boss. So yes, He is to the people, hey, I want you to observe the Sabbath day so you will remember Me. But here He comes along. You know, the one that gave the Sabbath, He can do what He wants. He has that authority. He has that ability and He's not being a hypocrite because of it. He is above them. He is the Son of God. He is God. He's the lawgiver. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He, Jesus is in charge of the law. The law is not in charge of Him. And that's a little foreign to us because again, you know, we, you know, in, in our country, it's supposed to be that no one is above the law. That's how it's supposed to be. We don't have a king. We don't have a monarchy. We are, we have a, we have a constitution. We are a republic. That's how things work here. So we don't have anyone that is above the law. Okay? But at the same time, that is what they had in Israel. They were a theocracy. God is in charge. He gave them the law. So when the lawgiver comes along, and even especially when his law said, 
that when this prophet comes, you do what he says, he can do whatever he wants. It's like, well, you know, could he go around just, you know, killing people and slapping old ladies and things like that? Again, Jesus never did anything contrary to the moral law. Nothing contrary to the moral law. These ceremonial things, he's the boss of those things. And when he said the sacrifices are done, Israel should have listened. They absolutely should have listened to those things. And so, when Jesus saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath too, this, this is another verse you can use for people who act like Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, wait a minute. Who gave the command of the Sabbath? God Himself said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Jesus said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't that kind of claiming He's God? Yeah, you better believe it is. So that's just one more uh, verse you can uh, keep in your arsenal of verses proving the deity of Christ. Save that one for the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, uh, the Muslims, all that. A good verse. And, and the Jews. So verse 9, And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse them? Okay, and so, again, you're going to tell Jesus what to do in the synagogue? That, 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 you don't get to do that. Okay? You, you know, that, imagine, in all things, he might have the preeminence in the church. Again, if Jesus showed up here, who are we to tell him what to do? It's like, man, Lord, you didn't wear a suit and tie. You know, that's old paths. You know, really, we're going to hold Jesus accountable to our old paths, you know, traditions? That's, that would be nuts. If he wasn't wearing a suit and tie, I wouldn't say nothing. Of course, and if he showed up here in our church service, too, I'd have a few questions because that seems to go contrary to his word. But, he, but you, I think you get the point. He is the boss. And just to think that they were trying to tell Jesus what to do in the synagogue is pretty crazy. And so, and, and how ridiculous, too. This shows how obsessed they were with their traditions and, how, and what they had done to these ceremonies, these ceremonial things. They had turned them into burdens to the point that a man who is, has a withered hand and has this infirmity that makes his life more difficult, they're offended that Jesus is taking away this infirmity. Jesus is literally lightening his load. And every, all the time when we see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, he's literally making people's lives easier, and yet they're still getting offended. That just shows how far these people were from God in their minds and in their hearts and how little they understood the law of God. They had turned these things into burdens. The Sabbath, it was meant to bring rest, not to cause a burden. Matthew twelve eleven, and he saith unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Listen, you, if you have an animal that's dying and in peril, you can save it. You know why too? Because one, you know, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. You ought to care about the animal. But two, if your animal dies, your life's more difficult now as a result of it too because they needed those animals for survival. And so while God wanted them observing the Sabbath day, He didn't want them observing it to their own destruction. You know, common sense was supposed to prevail. So again, I believe you ought to be faithful to church. I believe in being, being faithful to the house of God. God. I believe you ought to go to church. That doesn't mean that we can't use common sense and sometimes realize, you know what, it's just, I'm not going to be able to make it happen today. It's okay for you to do that. And many churches, they've made it like a ceremonial thing, and it's kind of like the Pharisees, and they act like the Pharisees if you, you, know, if you miss, even when there's a really legitimate reason. And so, 
this is a reminder too of what Jesus said in another place too, where Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Again, you all have gotten this backwards. God gave man the Sabbath for their benefit. And these people were turning it into a burden. So verse 12, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. They were wrong. It is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth. And it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. Think, imagine getting people so mad at you because you healed a guy. But you know what? It wasn't just because they healed the guy. It was because he upstaged them. It was because they were the ones in charge. But who do you think these people are going to listen to? The, the one who has been putting burdens on them or the one who can do miracles and is taking burdens away from them? I mean, it's a pretty obvious choice at that point, isn't it? And so they are, they're upset. But Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath days. And again, if, because these things were meant to help people, not to be a burden. There was no harm done except to their authority that they were trying to take by violence and force. Jesus is trying to free the captives. Jesus is trying to preach liberty to the captives. They are physically trying to stop Him from doing that. So verse 15, But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew Himself from thence, and great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them all, and charged them that they should not make Him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold My servant whom I have chosen, My beloved in whom My soul is well pleased. I will put My Spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name's name shall the Gentiles trust. And I believe it was Sunday we looked at that passage too in Isaiah. And it was showing too that Christ not making himself known while he's doing all these miracles. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy by Isaiah that was given, again, so they would be able to identify the Messiah when He came. And so what we're seeing in that prophecy is it's showing that this, this Messiah is not going to be like many great leaders. Who There have been many great leaders throughout history who have done very good things for their people, but ultimately, they often will do these things to promote themselves and to lift themselves up. Not so much for the people. For example, can anybody think of somebody who might be like that today? Exactly. I think Trump, I, I sincerely, if you want my opinion of Trump, I believe Trump wants to be a good president. I believe Trump wants to make America great again. I believe he wants us to all be so successful that we just get tired of succeeding and we can't. I, I believe he wants that for all of us. He wants to make us all rich and wealthy and happy and all that kind of stuff. However, I also believe that he wants to do that because he wants to go down in history as the greatest president ever. I, I, I really do believe that. I think, it, you know, I, I think if push came to shove, if he was going to be the greatest president and help us all out and he wasn't going to get any glory, I think he'd be like, forget it. 
That's my opinion of them, okay? Now, I think I've got some pretty good evidence for why that might be right. But, uh, and, and I'm not saying I even think he's going to get it done, but I do. I, I, I think he wants to be seen as the greatest president in all of history. I think it made him really mad when he got beat in the last election, which I'm not allowed to say anything about you-know-what on YouTube. But at the same time, too, uh, at, at the end of the day, that, that really messed with his legacy. And so now, if he's able to make a comeback, it, like, vindicates what was done to him. And so I do. On one hand, I do think this is about Trump. I think his campaign is about Trump. But I think he also understands in order for him to have a great legacy and to go down, that he does need to do good for us. And so maybe he'll get lucky and get it done. I don't know. I don't know. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Biden, I don't think he knows what's going on. Okay. Uh, the, the people pushing his buttons, I think they, they've got a sinister agenda. And, uh, and Biden, uh, I, I, I think if, if he has a lucid moment, probably would like to do good for America. But he, he's still trying to find out, you know, what he's doing in the White House, you know, and where his ice cream is and things like that. So, uh, but Jesus, okay, understand, Jesus was not like your typical, you know, leader who comes into power, who's there promoting himself. And again, trying to do good to the people. You know, again, to gain their favor. So they can follow him and then he can benefit from them and sometimes even turn on them. Jesus Christ, when he came, this was solely for the good of everyone else. We had nothing to offer him. He had everything to offer us. And so when he's going around doing these fantastic things and he's telling people not to make it known, that's unusual. That's not something that they were used to seeing, but this is what Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah was going to be like. And again, it shows his humility. And that is one of the notable things that, the, that was prophesied about him. And one of the things that we clearly observe in the Gospels, that he was humble. He, he was a man of sorrow, acquainted with griefs. I mean, uh, he had no form or comeliness that we would desire him. I mean, I mean Jesus was a very lowly person uh, physically speaking and socially speaking but yet when you look at who he was and what he did i mean he was god you know and that, that's and that's all that's all there is to it so um that's what we're seeing here and why it referred to this prophecy jesus is a humble he's a humble man even though he's god and doing things that no man could do so it says then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? But if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me 
scattereth abroad. And this passage here, there's, there's a lot of opinions about this passage and speculation. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But again, one of the things that I've been wanting to highlight as we go through the book of Matthew is the subject of the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of false ideas out there about it, especially in the futurist world who, again, because we believe in a future physical kingdom of Christ, we often ignore the spiritual kingdom that has come, that has been set up, that we should be enjoying, that we should be active in, that we should be serving in. We can't just be waiting for the physical and just look at, you know, we shouldn't be looking forward to that day as if that's when I'll finally be doing something. That's when I'll finally be. No, now is the time to be doing something. God, his kingdom has come and he's very clear. He said, if I'm casting out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven is come. So he, he's definitely saying that. And it's important that we understand again, too, um, when he said to, um, yeah, he that is not with me is against me. Again, these religious leaders who are committing violence upon the kingdom of heaven. They are, they are physically trying to stop Jesus as he is doing a work in his kingdom. And so these people who are working against him, who are turning, trying to turn people away from him, they are, they are scattering abroad. Jesus is trying to gather people in. And what did they do in the kingdom? They were shutting people out of the kingdom. And so now Jesus has come on the scene. He has taken over. He is taking his rightful role, uh, you know, as the, as the Son of God. And what are the Pharisees doing? They're fighting him, scattering abroad, turning people away from him. And in their own name. And in their minds, they're thinking, no, we're keeping these people in our kingdom. But in reality, those guys weren't even in the kingdom. Jesus told them, you're not even going in yourselves. And you're forbidding others from going in. And so anybody, when he's saying, he that is not against, uh, or uh, he that is not with me is against me, these people who were, they, they were scattering people away from Jesus Christ. They were working against the kingdom of heaven in doing this. And this was a great sin for them to be doing that. And so Jesus is just using some common sense reasoning here. And it's clear one should be able to judge the spirit that someone is doing a work by. That's one of the things he's pointing out here. It was clear there was nothing satanic about what Jesus was doing. It, this was nothing more than a railing accusation. So, you know, again, they're saying you're doing this by the spirit of Beelzebub. Oh, really? What evidence is there that I'm doing this by the spirit of Beelzebub? What reason do you have to think that? That's just a wild accusation. That's just a railing accusation that they're making. And he's saying, you know, your children will be your judges. Everyone should have been capable of looking at what Jesus did and understanding that it was of God. Uh, uh, Keep that in mind. So verse 31, he goes on to say, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known 
by its fruit. And, I, and I've been saying it before, that whole idea of a tree being known by its fruit, that can have many applications. It can have many applications. There are some things that we ought to have the common sense to be able to tell. You ought to be able to tell the difference between an apple tree and a pear tree. And you ought to be able to tell the difference between someone who is casting out devils by the Spirit of God and someone who is casting out devils by Beelzebub. So what's the difference? Well, I can give you one example. So Jesus and the apostles, typically, when they would cast out devils, they would just speak a word and do it in the name of Jesus. So what does it look like to cast out devils by Beelzebub? Holy water, crucifixes, the power of Christ compels you and all that stuff that they do. Yeah, that, 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 I would say that, and let me tell you, there's, the, I, there's nothing about the Spirit of God in that type of thing. Or we could even talk about, too, you know, some of this, uh, I forgot what they're calling it, this new movement that Greg Locke and all of them are involved in, too. That's a bunch of garbage, too. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But, again, we ought to be able to judge the spirits on these things. And, and so when he says, uh, either, just make the tree good and its fruit good, make a crop, make a decision on this thing. You should be able to tell. You should be able to decide what's right here. And so notice he says in verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now, there is a, there's a lot of debate about what this is too. This idea of blaspheming the Holy Ghost. I preached on this a while back. I'm going to repeat some things here. And there are, there's a lot of good opinions out there and you know that I've heard over the years about the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, and I think a lot of things I've heard people say is accurate. However, they often have not explained why that's the case. And I think we can find out what it is, and I think we can find out why it's so bad too. Because why is blaspheming the Holy Spirit so much worse than blaspheming the Father and the Son? Have you ever thought about that? Why is that so much worse? Why is blaspheming the Holy Ghost un unforgivable? Okay? Now, if I may give one really carnal illustration for why blaspheming the Holy Ghost is worse. All right? uh, let's say, for example, all right, um, if, if I went up to Brother Jason and I did a yo mama joke at him. Okay? Now, I've never met his mom. So if I'm doing yo mama jokes at, at him, saying stuff about his mom... He shouldn't take it too personal because, again, I never even met his mom. You know, so again, you know, and obviously, you know, he would know I was joking in that situation too. But imagine too, though, if, you know, so it's, it's like this. When it comes to the father and the son, none of us have ever had any experience or interaction with them. So people who say things against God are saying it in ignorance. But the Holy Ghost, He is who deals with man. He is the one who draws people to salvation. So again, you know, if you're so if you're talking about my mama, you know, and it's clear you've never met my mom or anything, I'm probably just going to take it more as a diss against me. I'm not really going to care. But if you start saying stuff about my mom, and it's like stuff, and it's like you have met her, and you are saying specific things about my mom, I'm going to be bad because you know how how dare you meet someone like my mom. 
and say negative things about her. And I've never heard anybody say anything negative about my mom. And it wouldn't go well if I did. Because there's nothing negative about my mom. Okay? And, and I'm... <laughs> And I don't think I'm joking when I say that. Okay, I, I think that I think you know that that's exactly how I feel. Okay? And so understand too. But again, I've had people throw out insults and, and things. It's clear they don't know, and so I don't take it real personal. But people who say things against the Holy Ghost, these people are. This is that is some serious blasphemy because that's not done in ignorance. It's done in knowledge, and that's why too. No forgiveness, because you know we're all familiar with the reprobate doctrine here. What is one of the key things about the reprobate? They knew the truth, and they rejected it. They knew God and glorified Him not as God. Well, how did they know God? Well, they knew through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had spoken to them. The Holy Spirit had reached out to them, and they rejected. And they and so when they blasphemed Him, that's when that's why they can't get forgiveness. That's why they're never going to have it. So there is, there's a big difference between saying something very negative about something you have no knowledge of or, and saying something very negative and, and purposefully critical, too. And that's the thing, too. These people are purposefully saying things. People who say things, many of the negative things they say about God are saying it in complete and total ignorance. They're just a fool. You know, in many, in many cases, they're just a fool. They don't know God. But that reprobate, they're somebody who has, they have, they have, uh, been in contact with the Holy Spirit. And when they blasphemed Him, it was a completely different ballgame now. This isn't ignorance. And so God doesn't, God is not forgiving it. And so, I believe that's, and so it says in verse 32, we already looked at, you know, whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be given, but you're not going to be forgiven if you speak anything against the Holy Ghost. And so he's saying, you need to make a decision. Is the tree good or bad? Check the fruit. You'll know by the fruit. What did Jesus just do? He helped someone by casting out a devil, making them able to see and speak. How on earth do you come up with negative words to say about somebody who's done something like that? You just have to be evil. Now, how does somebody have an interaction with the Holy Spirit where they're drawing them to salvation, pointing them to Jesus Christ through somebody giving them the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they look at that and to, and to speak against that with knowledge? Again, there's a lot of things people say against God, but again, in ignorance or in deception. Many people say some very wrong things because they have been deceived. They're still wrong. They're still spreading a lie. If you fall for a lie and you spread that, you're still spreading a lie. You're still lying. But at least it's, there's, there's an innocence there. It's, it's in ignorance. But when you do it on purpose, that's the worst kind of lie right there. That's when you cross a line. And so people who are speaking against the Holy Ghost, I believe that that's why they go reprobate at that point. Because these people knew the truth and they are purposefully lying about the Holy Ghost. And in this case here, okay, now think about this. In this case here in the story, they're lying about the, the work Jesus is doing to keep people from the kingdom of God. They're doing this to keep people from getting saved. So again, if somebody is speaking against the Holy Ghost, in the, with the intention of trying to stop people from getting saved, 
isn't that the worst kind of sin you could possibly do? I mean, to try to get somebody's soul damned to hell? Is that not the worst thing anyone could possibly do to you? Listen, those of us who understand the truth of the Scriptures and the truth about heaven and hell, that literally is the worst thing you could do to somebody. I mean, there's a lot of bad things you can do to us physically. But you know, the Bible says, fear not him that can destroy the body. But fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so people, this is why false prophets are the worst of the worst. And again, and so, some false prophets are deceived. Some false prophets have been deceived. Some are ignorant. Some have never been taught right. And even though what they're spreading is wrong and evil, I'm not saying everyone who preaches a false gospel is unsaved. I think, or, or, or reprobate, not, not unsaved, a reprobate. Sorry, let me correct that there. Uh, I, I don't believe they're all reprobate. Many of them are in a state of ignorance. Many of them are just, are, are deceived. But let me tell you, there are some out there that have seen the truth. They've rejected that truth. And for those people to continue to spread that false gospel, I don't think there's any forgiving them. I think those are brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. They are the worst of the worst. And isn't that, and I, I think that's why too, when you look at Jude, when you look at Second Peter, you see them, you know, eyes full of adulteries and all these things. Listen, if you are not afraid to send people to hell knowingly, again, not in ignorance, to knowingly send people to hell, why would you fear stealing money from the church? Why would you feel fear adultery? Why would you feel fear molesting kids? Why would you fear any of those things? If you if you can purposely send people to hell, there is nothing that you would be afraid to do. And that's why they are. They are the worst of the worst. And so we got to watch out. So here when he is talking about their words too, when he said, by thy words thou shalt be justified, by thy words thou shalt be condemned, he isn't talking about their vocabulary as much as their words that were spoken in judgment of the works of Jesus. They revealed their hearts by their judgments. They were speaking against the Holy Ghost and not only was that blasphemy, but that was blasphemy based on knowledge rather than ignorance. It's a completely different ball game. And just remember that too, because we do. We, ha- we see that a lot where people get really zealous uh, uh, against false prophets and all that and it's just immediately everyone's a reprobate who says something wrong. No, a lot of them are in ignorance. Okay? If everybody that preached a false gospel is wrong, then we can't ever have or a reprobate and we can't have Pastor Obi back ever again because he used to preach a false gospel. But you know what? You know, he did it in deception. He did it in ignorance. And you know what? The truth was revealed to him. And it was a battle for him. It was a struggle. But he eventually came around. And now he's preaching the right gospel. So don't throw them all, don't, don't throw them all in hell right away. Some people just need a chance. Some people need the truth to get through to them. And, and thank God for that. But again... There are the legitimate reprobates out there for sure. And so anyone who is against the Father and Son clearly is ignorant against God. And they are, uh, if they're speaking against the Holy Ghost, they are scattering abroad, working against Christ, who came to seek and save that which was lost. So verse 38, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, 
For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Remember this verse whenever the people come along saying the Jews require a sign. Okay? Listen, here's what we got to understand. This, this, is, this is what's going on here. You say, well, the Jews require a sign. That's why Jesus did all these signs. That's why the apostles did all these signs. Okay? This, isn't, this isn't that complicated. Okay? God often does do signs. But God does them according to His will, not according to our demands. Okay, keep that in mind. And so, yes, the Jews require a sign. But we don't ever, anytime the Jews went and demanded the sign of Jesus, He wouldn't give it to them. But He did signs according to His will and His purpose. And God, and God, and sometimes the apostles did signs even amongst the Gentiles. Okay, signs, you know, are a real thing. But God does not give in to anyone's demands about signs. And so people just absolutely twist that verse so bad just to teach, you know, everything's special for the Jews and stuff like that. It's absolutely ridiculous and I don't even have time to go into that scripture. But when I say too, God does not give in to our demands about a sign, these people might bring up, you might think of somebody who asked for a sign like Gideon. Okay, and now, but here's the thing about Gideon. Okay, what did Jesus say? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. What do we know about Gideon? Uh, well, first off, he had a ton of wives, and he was very idolatrous. So, I mean, that seems kind of fitting that he was always asking for signs. But here's the thing about that too, though. Yeah, but God, but God gave it to him. Well, remember this. Okay, there is a difference uh, between. So, God expects more from those who have seen some things. God expects us to learn from things previously done. I don't have time to give, I could give a lot of examples on this, but every generation that came after different miracles took place, were they, those people were always more accountable. God held future generations that did not see the Red Sea part. God held them accountable for their lack of faith because God had opened the Red Sea. We weren't there for it. We didn't get to see it. doesn't matter. It happened. I recorded it in my word. You're supposed to believe it. And so understand, at Gideon's time, you know, a lot of stuff hasn't happened yet. So God often, you know, it's kind of like at the time of this ignorance, God winked at. He didn't, he didn't like it. He shouldn't have needed to do that. But there were some things God put up with for a time. And so the thing is, this particular generation got more than any other generation. And listen to what Jesus said about them. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment upon with this generation and shall condemn it because it repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came for the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So notice how Jesus is condemning that generation for their lack of faith and bringing up people who had much less light, who had lesser men, lesser prophets, how they listened to the preaching. But look at all that you have received and yet you're not listening. You all are in trouble. God held them accountable. So, again, even though this generation didn't pass through the Red Sea, previous ones had, therefore, God expected more from them than He did the people of Israel before they crossed the Red Sea. 
And you know what? Jesus came. He did his miracles. And so God expects more from us than he did from them back then. I preached a sermon about this a while, a long time ago too. People, whenever preachers fall into sin, what do they always want to do? Talk about David. Look at what David did. Okay, listen, David got the snot beat out of him for it. For one. But two, okay, you were supposed to learn from that. So you're in bigger trouble than David was. You know, and they'll always bring up stuff like that. It's like, no, God expects more from you today. Oh, well, what about this, you know, you know, this pastor in previous generations? You know, he had this moral failing. You know, he failed in this area. You know, his family all turned out like garbage. Yeah, and you didn't learn from that? You saw all these things and yet you're continuing that pattern? You're in bigger trouble than he was. Because God expects more from us. God expects us to learn from these things. So never fall for that where people try justifying their sin and their failures because people from previous generation had sin and failures. No, that just means you're in bigger trouble because you should have learned. You have all those examples and you still didn't learn? Shame on you. You're in bigger trouble. And that's why Israel got so much in 70 AD and why they still have continued for the last 2,000 years to suffer. Because look at all God did and look at all that they rejected. So verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he walked through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. And understand, while this... I don't have time to expound on all of this, but the basic gist of what Jesus is trying to say right here is look at all that has been done for you and yet you are not accepting what you're supposed to accept. You are going to be in much greater trouble later on. I have done all this work for you and yet you are not accepting me. It's just going to, you know, things are going to be even worse than they were before I got here is basically what he's telling them. So then, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto, unto him that told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And this is one more reason blood relation and bloodlines mean nothing in the eyes of God. I mean, folks, so the bloodlines used to matter. Jesus literally, when people are talking about his mom and his brothers and sisters, he's like, hey, who, it doesn't matter. It's who does the will of the Father. That's what matters. Bloodlines never matter. Listen, if a bloodline was going to matter, I would say Christ's bloodline and his family would matter the most. I mean, Mary's children... I, you know, that, that's, that's as closely related to Jesus as you can get. Okay, obviously, it, it, wouldn't a descendant, you know, wouldn't a great, 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 great niece or nephew of Jesus have some kind of special standing? And you know what the answer to that is? No. Because even his brother, sisters, and mother. And notice they didn't mention father too, because again, he didn't have an earthly father. God, God was his father. So, um, just a good reminder for those who 
think bloodlines are something important, but this chapter is a good reminder. There are some people who simply will never be saved. What Jesus is showing here, and what we can learn from this, in, in Proverbs, we're not going to go to scriptures on it, but scorners, what does the Bible say about scorners? About Cast out the scorner. And, you know, and, you know, or smite, and it says to smite the scorner and the simple war beware. You punish scorners not for their benefit, it's for the benefit of everybody else. You know why? Because scorners hear not rebuke. Scorners, truth doesn't matter to a scorner. Evidence doesn't matter to a scorner. Most of the atheists out there that act like they're about evidence, they're just scorners. They're scoffers. And no matter what you show them, it doesn't matter. The Holy Ghost can speak to them. And what do they do? They reject Him and then they speak against Him and they lie about Him. You know why? Because scorners, scorners in Proverbs, I believe, are basically an equivalent of a reprobate. Pretty much. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing in this story. We're seeing people who just are refusing truth. They're just refusing truth. It's being presented as good as it can possibly be. The Son of God Himself is preaching it to them. He's doing miracles. But what did they do with it? They turned it around on Him and they accused Him of evil. That just shows how wicked these people were. God has done more than enough to prove Himself. And sadly, one day, people will be held accountable for what they did with the light that was given to them. And I believe nations like the United States are going to be in big Big trouble. When you look at what we are allowing in this country, when you consider all the churches we have, all the light that's been given, all the Bibles we've had, all the revivals we've had, and the fact that we've got sodomites running rampant and being put in government and all the junk that we're seeing, I mean, man, fire and brimstone could fall tonight. And you know, if we were just and right with God, what we would say as the fire and brimstone is about to take us all out, we would say, God is merciful. Because we should have got torched a long time ago. That's how bad we are. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this chapter and the wonderful lessons that we can learn from it. I pray you help us, Lord, to um, to learn these lessons. Help us to you know, judge righteously on these things. And help us to uh, be a good example in these areas and spread these truths uh, far and wide. In your name we pray. Amen.